The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, hi everybody. I'm Walt Opie. Great to be here with you. Um, I uh, This is my first time speaking in this uh, hall in this way, so I've been a little nervous, but I feel calmer at the moment, which is good. <laughs> um, I live in Berkeley, so I can't get down here as often as I was, would like, but I really love IMC uh, and do come down here on occasion, and I consider Gil Fronsdale uh, one of my main teachers and certainly have learned a ton from him over the years. Um, let's see, and I've studied, did a little bit of sutta study with him not too long ago, and tonight I'm going to talk about some suttas. Those are the sort of ancient Buddhist texts that were originally in, well, the ones uh, that I'm going to refer to were originally in the Pali language, P-A-L-I, which was an ancient language at the time of the Buddha in India about 2,600 years ago. But uh, hopefully it won't be too dry. I'll <laughs> do my best. And the topic I was going to talk about was uh, truth, Sacha, uh, S-A-C-C-A for you poly nerds out there. <laughs> um, but uh, the, there's a list that you may have heard of called the Ten Perfections or the Ten Paramis. And that's, um, these are qualities that it was said that uh, uh, after he was gone, the, some uh, other monks got together and said, what, was, what were the qualities that the Buddha had that made him special because he was sort of a, he was really an amazing being and um, there don't seem to be a lot of people like him. What, what was it that made him so special? And they kind of put together, in different traditions in Buddhism have different, some traditions have six, but we, we have 10 in the Theravada um, tradition or uh, <clears throat> that's the list I'm most familiar with. Just to review them, the first one was generosity. The second is um, morality or virtue, uh, virtuous conduct. The third one is renunciation, kind of a wise discernment of what we really need versus maybe what our desires or cravings might tell us we need. Um, wisdom, energy, patience, and then we get to uh, truthfulness. And truth, that's really what we're going to talk about tonight. Just to finish the list, there's resolve um, and loving kindness or metta. You may have heard about metta, sometimes just called goodwill. And uh, equanimity, evenness of mind. So this is a, a you know, we could spend a lot of time uh, I know they have programs where they spend a year on this here here at IMC, so I just wanted to touch on it. I think it's a, these are all qualities we can be developing in our practice and um, at different times. And truth is, to me, a really interesting one. Um, I know Gil has said that the... Um, there's a lot of power in truth, so, uh, and also that, you know, it's our honesty, and it's not just about being honest with others, but also being honest with ourselves. 
And as we know, when we're not really being honest with ourselves, then we're a little off. And our, certainly our spiritual progression is going to be kind of um, limited because there's something about really being honest with ourselves that um, makes a you know, big difference in the, um, our ability. Otherwise, it's a little like uh, being in a rowboat and rowing, but we still have the rope is still tied to the dock. You know, we're, there's something kind of holding us back. Um, I'm in the, rec- uh, so I've been in recovery. That's really how I got sort of more on a, I was always interested in spiritual things, but uh, when I found out I was an alcoholic in my early 20s, that kind of put me on a more spiritual path than I might have chosen <laughs> for myself, certainly at that time. Uh, of course, it's been a great blessing in my life that I never could have predicted, but um, nonetheless. Um, and in the uh, recovery world, they often say, you know, you could see a therapist for years, but if you don't mention the, the one, if you're not honest about one thing, say you're drinking, then you're not actually going to make a lot of progress in therapy, uh, th- things like that. So you, you, and, th- and these are things that I'm sure all of us know already, and uh, so there, you could call them reminders. Um, I think I'll talk about why I wanted to bring up this topic tonight in a sec. So um, <clears throat> one thing is, uh, it's been said that we live in a post-truth world recently, which is kind of weird, and we hear things like, phrases like fake news a lot these days. Um, and uh, so it, it's just been an interesting time uh, I guess part of my background is I grew up in a small town in Virginia, and my family had started the newspaper in that town in 1904. And so my grandfather, his older brother, started the paper. My grandfather worked there his most of his career, um, and then my father followed in his footsteps. Um, then they sold the paper to some big chain, like that's the way... The, world these days, and uh, there was a nepotism clause, so I wasn't allowed to work there. <laughs> but I was a uh, sports writer and news reporter for a while in my early days. So anyway, the, but the point was, when I grew up, I was really, um, the telling the truth was really important, and uh, my, certainly my family, they kind of felt like their reputation with the newspaper uh, rested on Given, you know, telling both sides of a story and, and telling the truth and things like that. And they had a motto for the newspaper, which was called The Leader. Um, and it was something, it involved the phrase to give confidence to the truth. And I always thought that was an interesting uh, motto. And so in some ways you could say this talk is to give confidence to the truth. Um, and also in my personal life, I've just had some... Uh, interesting experiences around the truth recently, which also has brought this topic up. Um, A close friend of mine uh, went through a tough time and uh, had been in recovery, and he, he, you know, they call it a relapse. He started drinking again and uh, helped him get some some professional help, and he was doing better. Uh, And anyway, he's had some ups and downs, but, you know, he... uh, didn't want to, because of shame or whatever, he didn't always want to tell me the truth. And uh, so we had to kind of, but for me, I feel like um, true friendship involves being able to tell each other the truth. 
So, um, you know, we, we, we were able to get to that point, but it was just interesting. Um, then I also do a lot of prison work, and this comes up a lot, you know. Um, people don't always want to... They like to talk about the gray areas between <laughs> things. And, uh, and I was recently at the prison last week, and uh, I go to Solano Prison in Vacaville, kind of near Sacramento. I've been doing that for about four and a half years, and we have a Buddhist. We have two Buddhist groups there on two different levels of. Uh, anyway, not to get too. <laughs> but um, one of the guys who's been in prison since 1988, uh, which is kind of a profound thing in a way to, to just take that in. Um, so about 30 years, and he said, and you know. I deserve it because I did, I did it. I did the crimes I was accused of. But there was something powerful about the way he just was owning that truth that, yeah, I, I committed some terrible crimes and I'm, I'm in the right place. And, I mean, he's hoping to go, get out on parole, and I, I, I'm not here to judge whether he should or shouldn't be in for 30 years for what he did. But there was, it, it, there's something always a little refreshing when somebody's telling you what... Uh, I've heard called, you know, the unvarnished truth. And the Buddha definitely, you know, was a big believer in truth. Um, boy, I'm starting to use the word truth a lot, but I guess that's the topic we're talking about. Uh, so you get the idea that, oh, I know, one of the things that Gil uh, talks, has talked about that I have heard a talk by him was that, you know, we want to have... Uh, it's powerful to have a love of truth. And I guess that was my earlier point about growing up with the newspaper family. I was actually really taught to have a love of truth, that there was something uh, you can be, I guess, passionate about the truth. So um, I like that idea. And I think what this, how this relates to our practice is that we want to see things clearly. We don't want to be seeing with our you know, eyes clouded by longing, clouded by greed, aversion, or delusion, as we talk about in Buddhism a lot, um, the defilements um, that we hear about. So um, you know, we have to be, there's that word resolve in the uh, 10 perfections. We have to kind of be resolved to look honestly at ourselves and the world around us and to try to see things as clearly as we can. And uh, that will, you know, that to me, that's a big part of the practice. So um, I, and I'm also a fairly new parent. I have an 18 month old daughter. And uh, so I love the stories uh, where the Buddha is talking to his son, Rahula. You may have heard that he had a, a son, and the son en- ended up. Um, First, the Buddha left his wife and son and went off to seek his uh, awakening. And then afterwards, he um, reunited and his son ordained as a Buddhist monk under him. His name was Rahula. And there's a, there are a number of suttas where the, where the Buddha is instructing Rahula. And there's one that I wanted to bring up because I just um, was reminded of it with this topic. And... Um, it's, uh, I don't know how technical to get it. It's Majima Nikaya 61 for those 
interested in that kind of thing, um, called Instructions to Rahula at Mango Stone is kind of the uh, translation. I'm not going to try to attempt the long poly name of the sutta. But um, so here, here's what the sutta, I'm going to read part of it, not the whole thing. But uh, I have heard that on one occasion, the Blessed One was staying near Rajgaha at the bamboo grove, the squirrel sanctuary. Um, now on that occasion, the Venerable Rahula was living at the mango stone. Then when it was evening, the Blessed One, the Buddha, rose from meditation and went to where Venerable Rahula was staying at the mango stone. And Venerable uh, Rahula saw the Buddha coming from afar and on seeing him made a seat ready and set out water for washing his feet. And the Blessed One sat down on the seat made ready and washed his feet. And then Venerable Rahula paid homage to him and sat down to one side of the Buddha. So this is sort of formal language. Basically, the Buddha went to check on his son, you know. <laughs> and uh, as was tradition, the Rahula puts out the, the uh, I guess, bucket of water. And then the, the, uh, the Buddha says, uh, after leaving a little bit of water in the water vessel, he asks, um, Rahula, do you see this little bit of water left in the water vessel? And Rahula says, yes, venerable sir. Even, even so little, Rahula, is the recluseship of those who are not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie. Um, just to back up, some, I've heard it suggested that maybe Rahula had been caught in some small lie uh, leading up, you know, before this. We don't know for sure. That might, um, I couldn't find any definite reference to that. But um, somehow I kind of picture that, that the Buddha's kind of here to maybe admonish him a little because he, he goes on, he says, um, so even so, and when we say recluseship, um, just means spiritual practitioner kind of thing. Um, you know, that, uh, recluse is kind of a term for that. So then the Blessed One threw away the little bit of, wa of water that was left and asked Rahula, do you see that little bit of water that was thrown away? Yes, Venerable Sir. Even so, Rahula, those who are not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie have thrown away their recluseship. Then the Blessed One turned the water vessel upside down and asked Rahula, do you see this water vessel turned upside down? And yes, venerable sir, even so, Rahula, those who are not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie have turned their recluse ship upside down. Then the Blessed One turned the water vessel right way again and asked Rahula, do you see this hollow, empty water vessel? Yes, venerable sir. Even so hollow and empty, Rahula, is the recluse ship of those who are not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie. And at this point, one imagines Rahula said, I think I get the point, Dad. <laughs> you know. uh, but I just love how he really goes, <laughs> goes to town on him in a way and, and uh, kind of really driving home this point. And uh, I just find it to be an interesting moment in the He's the Buddha kind of talking to his son and really wanting to make this super clear. And I should mention that I had a pretty strict father who 
his father had been a general in the uh, military, and so there was some strictness going on, and they definitely, my father, I can relate to this. <laughs> so maybe that's why I find it interesting too. Um, and then uh, the, the sutta's not over yet, and I kind of am going to shorten it here, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you a little more of how it ends up. Um, but also, the just to get back when he says, even so hollow and empty Rahula is the recluseship of those who are not ashamed to tell a lie, deliberate lie. Some, somehow that hollow and empty um, seems like pretty strong language that will come up again. I'm going to mention it uh, later as well. So then the Buddha goes on um, to talk about, he tells a little story about a royal tusker elephant in battle. Uh, and I'm not going to go into that. But then the, the key line with that story is the Buddha says, so too, Rahula, when one is not a, ashamed to tell a deliberate lie, there is no evil, I say, that one would not do. Therefore, Rahula, you should train thus, I will not utter a falsehood even as a joke. So that's even stronger. And uh, as somebody who loves comedy, this is kind of a tricky one. <laughs> but um, it's just interesting that he is saying not you shouldn't lie even as a joke. I'm, I think we, many of, I know I'm prone to exaggeration for a laugh. So um, this has been interesting. And I have spent time in uh, Buddhist monasteries, and I've noticed that the, the monks, uh, especially in the Ajahn Chah lineage, have not always found my humor funny. <laughs> and, and now I know why, right? Because I read this. <laughs> they're, they're following this really well. <laughs> so um, anyway, <laughs> that w- that's been a good teaching. You know, you hang out at a Buddhist monastery, you'll learn a few things. I highly recommend it. I, I'm t- I go to uh, Abayagiri in Redwood Valley occasionally. So that's where that I was thinking of. Um, and... Let's see, so that's not quite the end. Then um, he, he asks Rahula, what's the purpose of a mirror? I just think it's interesting that they had mirrors 2,600 years ago. I should have known, but it's good to uh, hear about it. And the Rahula replies, for the purpose of reflection. Makes sense. And then the Buddha say, uh, says, an action of body, speech, or mind should be done after repeated reflection. Should only be done after repeated reflection. Part of the reflection is to think about whether the action will lead to uh, affliction for oneself or others uh, or maybe both. And so then um, you should notice whether it's going to be a wholesome or unwholesome action and whether it will will lead to pleasant or painful results or consequences. And, uh, And then he adds that after an action um, of body, speech, or mind, one should also reflect back and, you know, how did that go? Did that bring affliction or was that, um, you know, useful for people? And um, so then he ends by saying, so Rahula, you should train thus. We will purify our bodily action, our verbal action, and our mental action by repeatedly reflecting upon them. And... um, I've heard it said that this, you know, a lot of these kind of ethical teachings are not always taught here in the West. We kind of 
Maybe there's an assumption that we're following along ethical lines and we don't need this stuff. But it's worth noting that it was really strongly uh, emphasized in the, as far as we know, in the, these ancient teachings. It was definitely a big part of the path. And as we know, with the Noble Eightfold Path, you have um, right speech, right livelihood, right action as well. So um, certainly it's woven in there. But it, And I know Gil has been teaching about ethics um, quite well, he's probably always taught about them, but I think I feel like he's been emphasizing them a lot, e- even more lately, perhaps. So, uh, thought I'd, and and the other thing about this, um, I find it really interesting that that the Buddha said, um, when one is not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie, there is no evil that one would not do, and that comes up. Uh, it's also in a, other places in the in the ancient texts. So, and um, I. F- you know, my experience, um, one of the ways I got into prison work was that when I was a kid, one of my best friends, really had one best friend uh, early on, he, his parents and my parents were friends, and we were the same age, and we were just kind of together a lot when we were young. And uh, he would, the one thing about him was we had a lot of the same interests. We had similar toys and, you know, we just liked all the same things. But the one thing is he would tell these whopping lies all the time. And uh, there was one time he told me that his father, there was, in Virginia, they had something that they called uh, the blue hole near, uh, out in the, I lived in a small town and this was out in the country near my hometown. But it was, it was some uh, swimming hole. It was like a, huge deep pit in the earth that had been filled in with water so the water was bright kind of a bluish color and nobody really knew you know that was what it said nobody knew how deep it was and he had some story about his father uh, had rented scuba equipment and swam to the bottom of it one time or something and it was just funny because if you knew his father it was really hard to picture that happening you know <laughs> nothing his father was a really sweet guy but he wasn't somebody that you pictured renting scuba equipment and deep diving to the bottom of the blue hole. So I just kind of knew it just didn't ring true, you know. And I would go to his mom and say, did this really happen? And she would say, of course not, or whatever. And uh, so I would just kind of call him on it. (laughs) But so we we were friends and it wasn't really a problem uh, while we were young. But as we got older, he didn't stop lying. And he actually ended up, we stopped being friends because I couldn't really stay friends with him at a certain point. there were a few things that happened that I'm not going to, don't have time to go into, but he did, he actually went on to a life, a really rough life, and he, he committed crimes. He ended up in prison. Uh, he died in a police shootout. He, he's now gone. Um, you know, had a really terrible life, but he and I, our early lives are very similar, you know, and, uh, that, and we had the same interests, and really the big difference was he, w- he would tell lies all the time. And uh, I don't know what that was all about, but it, it really stayed with me. So when, when I read that line, I always think of him. And uh, so anyway, that I take that line very seriously, and I, I think it's powerful that it's in there. Um, boy, I'm already running low on time. Uh, so 
we only knew how much material is here. <laughs> Let's see. So, well, uh, maybe I'll, I did want to include this because I thought it was interesting. Um, I heard recently about this um, Israeli um, writer, and I, I don't know exactly how to pronounce his name, Yuval Noah Harari. And he wrote a book called Sapiens, you may have heard of. And um, he, he has an interesting passage in his latest book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, that um, just makes an interesting point to, to some of the things we're talking about. Um, he says, we are repeatedly told these days that we are living in a new and frightening era of post-truth and that lies and fictions are all around us. Examples are not hard to come by. And then he lists a bunch, but I'm going to let you leave that to your imaginations. Um, But if this is the era of post-truth, when exactly was the halcyon age of truth? In the 1980s? In the 1950s? The 1930s? And what triggered our transition to the post-truth era? The internet? Social media? (laughs) Uh, And he named a couple other things that I'm not going to mention. And and then he says, in fact, humans have always lived in the age of post-truth. Homo sapiens is a post-truth species whose power depends on creating and believing fictions. Ever since the Stone Age, self-reinforcing myths have served to unite human collectives. Indeed, Homo sapiens conquered this planet thanks above all to the unique human ability to create and spread fictions. We are the only mammals that can cooperate with numerous strangers because only we can invent fictional stories, spread them around, and convince millions of others to believe in them. As long as everybody believes in the same fictions, we all obey the same laws and can thereby cooperate effectively. (laughs) So, I mean, this, uh, this is just a kind of an interesting thing to think about. I'm not saying you have to agree or disagree. We probably have a wonderful debate about this. But I um, thought that was an interesting perspective. And um, he goes on to say that he's not saying it's all bad. <laughs> uh, and I think he's pointed to that even there. But what I think that is helpful about uh, the Buddha's teachings and you know, Buddhist teachings and this idea of, of looking at truth and seeing, being honest with ourselves is that, um, so given the fact that we're always in a post-truth world, how do we deal with that? (laughs) And uh, that's where we need a practice. You know, we need wise discernment because we're going to be sifting through a complicated world. Um, I was, uh, I mentioned I'm a new parent. I was at the park with another dad. I, I know some other dads who have kids same age as mine and so we occasionally will meet up at a park, you know, uh, with our kids. And so our kids are running around, and I can't remember what I was telling him, but uh, I was saying something uh, was going on at the time. And then he said, you know, I think maybe the world has just become too complicated for us humans. <laughs> I don't even know if we can, you know, uh, handle it anymore. I can't. He's kind of a funny guy. But, um, yeah, it's just that, uh, the other thing is I saw a TED talk by, I don't have the name, but this guy was saying that we are pattern-creating beings as well. Our brains look for patterns and things. So we kind of are wired to 
look for things we can believe uh, and look for pa the patterns and things. So that's why if somebody lies repeatedly, it's hard, sometimes hard for us to not start believing it because we, it's like, oh, I've heard that one time, three times, five times, ten times. And at a certain point, we're like, it must be true. I've heard it that so many times. So we have to be very careful with this kind of thing. Um, and the Buddha, um, there was a time where he, there's a sutta where he goes to a town that um, I don't, it might be the first time he came there. This is called the Kalama Sutta, K-A-L-A-M-A. -A -A. Um, and this is ancient India, and the people in the, the Kalamas kind of say to him that they've heard really good things about him, but they've, they've also had a lot of different spiritual teachers come and go through their area, and everybody, each one of them says that they have the true, the truth. You know, they have the right, the best teachings, whatever. And it, it got to the point where the Kalamas didn't know who to believe anymore. And they, they kind of wanted to believe in the Buddha, but they wondered how he would answer this, the question of like, who do we, how do we know? We kind of have a doubt. Like, we've heard so many um, different versions of the truth from different te teachers that don't that sometimes conflict so what what should we believe and the buddha said um, come kalamas do not go upon what has been acquired by repeated hearing nor upon tradition nor upon rumor or upon scripture uh, or upon surmise or upon axiom or upon spacious reasoning, or upon uh, bias toward a notion pondered over, uh, nor upon another's seeming ability, nor upon the consideration the monk is our teacher. When you yourselves know these things are bad, blamable, censured by the wise, undertaken and observed, these things lead to harm and ill, then abandon them. And when you yourselves know these things are good, blameless, praised by the wise, undertaken and observed, these things lead to benefit and happiness. Enter on and abide in them. Um, so I think, and I'm, that's, you know, it's a much longer thing, and I just think um, it's interesting to see the Buddha's answer here, and um, he's basically saying you have to learn how to sift through the, <laughs> the um, you know, I'm looking for the polite term, <laughs> the uh, hui, <laughs> um, and uh, <clears throat> I just really like this, you know, he often said he, he would give a teaching, he'd say, you know, but um, Ahipasiko was the uh, phrase in Pali. Don't basically check it out for yourself. Don't just take my word for it. This is my experience. This is what I've observed, but check it out for yourself. And uh, I really like that. And he talks about looking for uh, not blind faith, but verifiable faith. There's, um, you know, to verify it for yourself. And, um, and that's one thing I really value about my experience in uh, Buddhist practice is that uh, when I've gone on retreat and different things and really tried to give the practice everything I have, uh, you know, 
resolve, energy, all the stuff on the list of 10 things, um, everything the Buddha said keeps checking out, you know, everything that I can verify. Uh, and so it's also, there's, a, there's an essay about the Kalama Sutta by Bhikkhu Bodhi where he says that this is often, this passage is taken out of context and he, the Buddha wasn't just saying never believe in anything, but just more, um, uh, you know, that in the context of all those other teachings, how do you decide what to believe? The Buddha gave him some pointers. Um, but uh, anyway, the I lost my train of thought a little bit. Oy, um, let's see, the... the Buddha was pointing to, um, oh, I know, I was saying that uh, the teachings have really, as I've uh, gone on more and more retreats, that the, the teachings that I can verify are, verif- you know, have checked out. And then as we look at science, science um, continues to, from what I have read, and heard about continues to verify what the Buddha was saying 2,600 years ago about how the human uh, brain works, you know, in our... So it's... Uh, I find that uh, to build a lot of faith in the teachings for me. Um, and let's see. We're going to run out of time. I wanted to... I guess the other part of this about truth um, is that, uh, you know, Jack Kornfield says in a, uh, an essay, um, happiness comes from the heart. Conscious conduct or virtue means acting harmoniously and with care toward the life around us. For spiritual practice to develop, it is essential that we establish a basis of moral conduct in our lives. If we are engaged in actions that cause pain and conflict to ourselves and others, it's impossible for the mind to become settled, collected, and focused in meditation. It's impossible for the heart to open. In a mind grounded in unselfishness and truth, concentration and wisdom develop easily. So I guess that was another key point I wanted to make that uh, this thing about honesty, um, one of the first retreats I went on, or it was actually the first retreat I went on, I had a little conflict with my housemate at the time, and he had asked me to write out my rent check to him, and um, I couldn't understand why I wasn't supposed to write it out to the landlord. (laughs) It's a long story, but anyway, so... Um, but I didn't tell him I wasn't going to do what he asked. I just ended up writing the check to the landlord and going off on retreat thinking, what, what's the worst that can happen here? And uh, not that anything terrible happened, but what was interesting was because I'd in a way lied to him because I didn't do what he asked, um, every time I went to meditate on that retreat, I'd close my eyes and I would start thinking, I should have just made the check out to, to him, you know? <laughs> and it was not a huge thing, but just that tiny little thing really kind of bothered me for that whole retreat. Fortunately, it was only a five-day retreat. (laughs) 
but what I noticed about it is the next time I went on retreat, I really tried to make sure, I was a little more careful, I reflected, I used that mirror that the Buddha uh, talked about or whatever, that, um, you know, am I, is there anybody that I need to make any kind of amends with before I go away? Do, do, is my conscience clear, I guess? And, uh, and, uh, and as I did that more and more, when I'd go on retreat, I did find exactly what, what Jack, bless you, is saying, uh, in a mind grounded in unselfishness and truth, concentration and wisdom develop easily. I found that I was able to concentrate a lot more easily when I didn't have something like that kind of uh, nagging at the back of my mind. So again, I really take these, some of these things seriously and it, it helps. Um, and the other thing we know about the truth is when we hear, hear the truth, it tends to have a healing effect, you know? Um, when the truth comes out, that, that's when you, you literally can feel a movement in the heart a lot of the times. Um, somebody reveals a deep, dark secret. Uh, it actually, even if it's a painful truth, there's something healing about just getting it out in the open. In the recovery world, they often say you're only as sick as your secrets. And there is some truth to that. And uh, so that's another reason I thought this was an important topic to reflect on. Um, and remember, my father was dying of leukemia. This is a quite a few, few years back. And um, so I had a little bit of a issue with, um, as I mentioned, a drinking uh, partying too much, you might say, in, in my teens and early 20s. And uh, my father was kind of strict and sort of um, put on the air of having, I guess he was trying to set a good example for me, you know. And, um, but uh, on, when he was close to dying, I kind of I interviewed him and recorded it as just a way to interact with him on a different level than just trying to have conversations with the TV on or something in the background. And um, it turned out to be a really interesting exercise. And one of the last things he admitted was that he had actually been um, uh, kicked out of college at one point because of his drinking. <laughs> and he had never told me that. <laughs> and it was funny how, um, you know, I guess he didn't want to be setting a bad example. But for me, it was so healing to hear that because <laughs> I felt like, Oh, you really are my father. You know, it's like, <laughs> not that there was any doubt, but uh, <laughs> it was just kind of like there was a, I don't know how to explain it, but that, just that little secret, hearing him reveal it was, uh, for me, really a heart opening moment. Um, and then the other thing that happened at that time, and then I'm going to have to close, but uh, so it was one of the last times. I knew it was going to be one of the last times. He lived on the East Coast. I was out here. I visited him, and I had to leave and come back to work because I'd, I'd already taken some quite a bit of time off. And so I, I was leaving. I didn't know if I'll ever see him alive again. Uh, it's pretty near the end of his um, illness. And um, he was talking about how he'd see me at Christmas, and he had. And we kind of knew there's no way he's going to make it till Christmas. It was just kind of a the doctors had made that pretty clear at this point. And he was, you know, but you just kind of say these things. And, but for me, it was like, this is an important moment because I may never see my father again. So I kind of said, no, really, Dad, is there anything left 
that we need to say to each other right now. <laughs> and it was, in, and I really attribute this moment to my practice because I don't know if I would have been able to do this without uh, a lot of meditation and, and uh, hanging out with people like Gil. <laughs> but um, anyway, it was great because he, he was not so good at this, but the clouds kind of parted and he really got present with me just in that moment and looked at me, uh, you know, and uh, we kind of um, locked eyes and he said, no, you know, I'm just very proud of you, son. And then we had this really sweet hug and uh, that was the last time we ever hugged standing. The next time he, that I saw him, I, he, I did see him again, but he was, um, couldn't stand really anymore. So anyway, uh, that was a powerful little moment of truth too. <laughs> so, the, you know, the, and there was a reward there in that sort of resolve to be honest in that moment. So I guess I'm out of time, <laughs> but thank you for listening. And I wish we'd have more time to interact a little, but uh, thank you for your kind attention. And uh, maybe I'll see you again sometime. <laughs>